This episode is brought to you by Essentia. A better you starts with better hydration. Essentia is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's accelerated degree programs. Our six and eight week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in business administration. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Robert Peston. And me, Steph McGovern. So how have you been? Yeah, good. I'm a bit damp today, I'll be honest. It's chucking it down, isn't it? And I see you arrived in full-on waterproofs. Yeah, You're I was like up, I was a up. hazmat suit walking in today. Yeah, I was on my Brompton. I'm not going to be deterred by <laughs> a little bit of light London rain yeah. from uh, getting on my bicycle. But yeah. it's, it's been a big week, though. Uh, centrist dad, my band of, you know, sad middle-aged dads is uh, back in the rehearsal studio. Oh, is it? What have you got coming up? Have you got a gig? Uh, I'll reveal that in a later episode. Oh, man. Uh, it's going to be one of the musical events the, of the year, naturally. The music industry is now poised, waiting for this mega event. <laughs> totally right. So what, yeah. so what, what have we got? So we are going to be talking about, you know, we've mentioned this before on the podcast, about companies not listing in the UK and why some companies are even moving off the UK listing to other countries. So we're going to talk about that because a big gambling group called Flutter, which uh, uh, owns the likes of Paddy Power and Betfair in the UK, and then you've got its big US one fan jewel in the States, they are essentially moving to the US. Well, so, they're going to put their primary listing in, yes. in America, and this is a part of a trend. And, you know, we've talked before about this huge issue about why big companies are apparently turning their back on the UK. So yes. it's got to be reversed. We're going to talk about that. But just before we started, you got an email that suddenly distracted you, which is not unusual. But this one in particular, I think everyone listening will be really interested in because it's to do with the post office scandal, isn't it? And what did and didn't happen between Henry Staunton, the chair, uh, the former chair of the post office and the business secretary, Kemi Badenoch. What, what, what is this email you've got? What's it telling us? So, I mean, the background obviously is we're still in the midst of this scandal of wrongly convicted sub-postmasters not being compensated properly. And you would have seen that in the Sunday Times over the weekend, Henry Staunton, who was sacked as chairman, he'd only been chairman for about a year, was sacked as chairman a few weeks ago by Kemi Badnock, the business secretary. He made a number of allegations about what had gone on in terms of his relationship with government while he'd been chairman. And probably the most damaging charge that he laid at the government's door was that he had been instructed by a senior civil servant to delay 
payments to sub-postmasters, to drag his feet on payments to sub-postmasters. To, the word he used over the weekend was limp into the election without trying to fix these problems. Now, the Times actually has reported that he's got hold of a contemporaneous note that he made of his meeting with the permanent secretary at the time. She's a woman called Sarah Mumby. She's a pretty young senior official. Uh, met her a few times. She's now running the science department, but she was at the time the senior official at the Department of Business. And this, what I've been sent this morning is a full copy of the email that he wrote to the post office's chief executive, a bloke called Nick Reed, going through in detail the conversation that he'd had that day in January of last year with Sarah Mumby, with the permanent secretary. Okay? So it's hard evidence. So, this. This, so you can't manufacture today an email with a date stamp of January 2023. So this was his contemporaneous, you know, shortly after speaking to her, this is what he wrote down about what she said. And actually, the first bit that I'm going to talk about isn't going to be about the question of, of the dragging feet on payment of sub-postmasters, because actually it also shines an extraordinary light on what a mess the post office is in, right? right? And this is worth listening to as well, because we all do depend on post offices and on sub-postmasters. So I'm just going to read you some really sort of gripping chunks. So he says that in September of 2022, which is not that long ago, they had a deficit of £210 million. After much effort, we identified savings £170 million. Since then, extra costs of 120 million quid have arisen, 60 million of them arising from Horizon. Listen to this, right? He's saying there were 60 million quid costs for Horizon, of which the biggest trunk was training in respect of, believe it or not, what they were saying to the public inquiry. So oh. they're spending tens of millions of pounds just giving evidence to the public So inquiry. on training people to go That's and do what it the says. inquiry. It says from Horizon, 60 million pounds, in been... brackets, training needs, especially with respect to the inquiry. It would have been right? more helpful if they'd trained then, everyone at the beginning when the Horizon software came in, wouldn't it? I mean, then there's a further inquiry cost of £30 million because it's taking longer. There's stuff to do with telephony and, and the internet. Anyway, a shortfall of £160 million. But this is the bit that really made my jaw drop, right? He says, there's a likelihood of a significant reduction in post offices if more funding... He says not required. I think he means not delivered. Last year, this is incredible. So what well, year are we talking here? So 2021? this is 2022. 22. Right? So he's saying this just over a year ago, yeah. right? And there's no reason to believe the position has changed at all. If anything, it's probably yeah. got worse since then. He says, in the previous year, half of all post offices were either loss-making yeah, or earning less than £5,000 profit, right? Whoa. The position would have deteriorated substantially because of increases in the minimum wage and fuel electric price. So he's basically saying it got worse last year in 2023, which is must be right. It's bound to have got worse in 2023. Yeah. And it says a recent survey indicated that one third of postmasters would hand back their keys over the following five years. And that figure would now be higher because of extra costs. So the reputation consequences of the post office and for government uh, were fraught, and it said. sounds so, like it's impossible to run a post office yeah, and make any money from it. So, quite apart from the appalling, literally yeah. appalling treatment of of sub postmasters, he's basically saying this is a business that nobody in their right minds would want to own and run because you know they're all making losses anyway, even after the Horizon scandal is fixed. And so then, yeah. on top of that, given it's hard yeah. given in the current climate they're working in yeah. to even run a post office. 
they are then, you know, he's then being told to delay giving them compensation. Well, let's let's get on to what their conversation was as it relates to the compensation scheme. So he says that Sarah Mumby, uh, the permanent secretary, was sympathetic to the above. She understood, in quotes, the huge commercial challenge and the seriousness of the financial position. She described all the options as unattractive. Oh, right. Okay, well, that's a a great shock. (laughs) And as you say, not desperately helpful. However, and this is a great quote, right? She says, politicians do not necessarily like to confront reality. Oh, my God. (laughs) This particularly applied when there was no obvious route to profitability. And this is the bit where it gets pretty damaging. And this is the bit where he is saying that she's basically saying, drag your feet on anything that's going to cost money, including compensation. So she says, she said we needed to know that in the run up to the election, there was no appetite to rip off the Band-Aid in inverted commas. So that means basically display to the world that they're gushing cash and it's all a terrible mess, right? Mm. As she said, now he claims, this is all in his speech marks, right? So he's saying these, these are verbatim quotes from her. He is saying that she says, now was not the time for dealing with long-term issues. And again, again in, in speech marks, we needed, he says, she says, to a plan to hobble so he said limp in the Sunday Times, but the word he now says, having found the email that she uses this word hobble, we needed to plan to hobble up to the election. In other words, limp on in the original term, but not fix anything. So he is saying he got the message from that. Don't rush to hand out significant sums of cash to postmasters. It should be said that the Department for Business and Kemi Badnock have today issued Another furious statement saying that he is willfully misunderstanding the conversation, that that's not what they meant, that there was a separate pool of money for sub postmasters. And, you know, so they are passionately, angrily denying his interpretation on this. But even if you take the view that this is ambiguous, it is a plain, you know, verbatim at the moment note, which I think many people would have interpreted as. You know, whether it's money to fix Horizon, whether it's money for Mm. compensation, there isn't money in the pot. So don't splash it. Yeah, which is disgusting, isn't it? Because we know that this whole scandal started a long time before this. So it's been years that these postmasters have been waiting for some resolution and for compensation and all of this. And to then suggest that it needed to be delayed further for political reasons It's astounding, isn't it? And and I do also therefore want to get on to, we're almost at the end of this quite interesting but quite long memo. I want to get on to the next one because the next one I think does reinforce his argument that this can be seen as being about essentially an instruction to drag your feet on everything from compensation to everything else that was needed to fix the post office. So it says, having said that, we and the business department, Bayes as it was then called, needed to do the long-term thinking for a new government of whichever colour. In other words, punt all this till after the general election. This would include what is politically acceptable with respect to the size of the network. She also referred to operational issues colouring the Treasury's thinking. In other words, she's saying the Treasury had lost confidence in the post office because it didn't believe it was being run efficiently with regard to money. Now, another thing that, that I've been told over the last few days is that the Treasury was one of the forces basically putting pressure on the post office not to rush to pay out the postmasters because the sums of money, and we've now seen the sums of money, Kemi Burnock only earlier this week said, you know, they're now planning to pay out something like a billion 
million quid. It's a lot of money, mm. right? And the Treasury was, as I understand it, I'm, I'm told, putting pressure on the post office, therefore, to delay these payments because it's a big chunk of money which they wanted to spend on other things. You know, There are lots of other public services crying out for money. So she's saying that the Treasury has lost trust in the post office. And, and she says that there's another thing in brackets where it says trust in the post office board and the management has not been high. Again, you know, the permanent secretary is reporting to him. And this is, this is another great quote, right? They could see this she says, and she's presumably, she's saying that the Treasury could see this as, in quotes, another begging bowl request from the post office. My <gasps> God, they're down on the post office. I said the funding issues revolved around poor decisions. And he said, this is Staunton himself, says that the funding issues revolved around poor decisions made years ago with regard to Horizon and the related legal issues, i.e. compensation. So he is explicitly saying at that point, these are problems that I inherited uh, to do with the grotesque treatment of sub-postmasters. I think it's probably worth as well just telling everyone who he is and his background, isn't it? Because he, he's a credible guy. He's someone who's got an impeccable reputation in the boardroom. He's someone who, you know, he's what, he's 75 now. He spent 20 years working as an accountant at PwC, quite a long time there. Then he was finance director at Granada, which at the time was, you know, this conglomerate, this FTSE 100 company. It ran the regional franchises of ITV. Um, it had a high street TV rentals business, a chain of motorway services amongst other things so he was the FD there and he helped steer apparently he, you know I'm told he, he's the kind of being the quieter guy in the background doing all this but he helped steer one of the largest mergers in media history this was this 5.8 billion pound deal bringing together Carlton Communications and, and Granada becoming a unified ITV back in 2004 then from that he ended up on the board of WH Smiths before becoming the chairman there and he did nine years as the, the chair there and that's when a time when WH Smith started to see its fortunes kind of revive as well. You know, they were doing really well out of all the kind of the travel hub side of WH Smith. And then from that, he was then what? He would have been in his 70s thinking about retirement, but he's asked to go and chair the post office. He did not need to go and do that job. He it was already in terrible trouble. He didn't need to do it. He was asked to. He went and did it. And now look what's happened. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've talked to, you know, people who've know him well, known him for years. I mean, they say he didn't need the money and he took the job, the chair, because he thought it was a bit of public service at the end of a long yeah. career. And so certainly among those who've known him for years, they're pretty upset at what they see as Kemi Badnock's attempt to dump on him to save the government's reputation and to build her own reputation. And there's a lot of anger in the business community about this. I mean, so, for example, she accused him in the House of Commons of bullying. She said that there was this governance report that raised all sorts of big questions about his own conduct while he was chair of the post office. He said on the record in his statement that when she sacked him a few weeks ago, nobody said anything to him about bullying. I've talked to people who know him. They say it feels just implausible because he wasn't that kind of guy. Didn't he? He found out he'd been fired from watching Sky News though, didn't he? Wasn't it the case that he then... He so did. if he'd have been accused of bullying, surely there would be a formal procedure where, you know, you get suspended or whatever or the investigation starts. 
to find out you've been sacked watching the that, news. The whole issue of him being sacked is so weird, right? So he learns on Sky News that he's been sacked. He then gets called in to see Kemi Badnach. I think this was actually the very first time they met since she became... Because she, at the time, I, I might come back to this memo because there's quite a funny thing at the end of it about Grant Chaps, who at the time that he wrote this memo, he was the business secretary. But we might come back to that later. So yeah. Maybe it's a little... A little tease. Punchline at the end. But nonetheless, she was in very hot water because the government was being accused of, as we know, after ITV's amazing drama, uh, Mr. Bates versus the yeah. Post Office, there's this national outcry about why, you know, so many sub-postmasters are struggling to get justice, having been wrongly convicted. Huge amount of pressure on the government for allegedly dragging its feet on compensation. She, for reasons that we don't fully understand even now, decide that he's got to carry the can. They have a meeting after he's already learned from Sky that he's being sacked. She apologises, says she didn't leak it to Sky. Now, a memo has been published that was taken by a civil servant at that meeting, right? That that meeting between Kemi Badnock and Henry Staunton, after in which she the sacks Sky him. Knew, right. So yeah, this is after, after yeah, he's seen yeah, he's been right. sacked. And they're right. now in the meeting. We're this now in the meeting. And, and so Kemi Badnock, in order to defend her attack on Henry Staunton, has got this memo published, right? It's a really weird memo. I mean, it begins, believe it or not, by Kemi Badnot. It records Kemi Badnot actually asking Henry Staunton for his views about how to fix the post office, right? <gasps> and, After he's and been as, sacked. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right. uh, in the meeting in which he's sacking him, right? And he says things like, we've got to give more power to the sub-postmasters. They are the heart yeah. of our organisation. We need to empower them, right? Yeah. Um, so at that point, she obviously thinks his views are worth knowing. Then lower down the memo, it says, but by the way, they've received these unspecified governance reports and she thinks he's got to go right now, she just says. And it doesn't really say in the memo what these unspecified questions about Sounds the way so that dodgy. he's been chairing the post office are. Now, I understand, again, from talking to people, these hackneyed phrase, close to Henry Staunton, that there was... And I'm going to ask your view on something now mm -hmm. about this because it's quite interesting. So an HR director who I understand has either left or is leaving the post office did compile an 80-page assessment of the government's procedures at the post office. And he's read it and he says there is one paragraph about him which he accepts is embarrassing about him, although he denies that he said what this paragraph says. But the paragraph says that he used the term girl as opposed to woman about a female colleague, right? He says he didn't do that, but it's plainly inappropriate to refer to a female colleague as a girl. But do you think personally that if your chairman refers to a female colleague as a girl, that's reason to sack the chairman? Yeah, I mean, if if we counted the number of times I've been referred to as a girl throughout my career, there would be nobody working in industry, I don't think, <laughs> all the different times it's happened. Um, do you know what? He might not even, you know, he's saying he, he didn't say it. He might not have even known he, he said it. That's the other thing. There's so many kind of subconscious bias, isn't there? To p me personally, that But is it a sacking offence? No, I, I don't think it is. I think it's like, it's patronising, but, you know women are used to that and it's not right that it happens but I wouldn't then call into question his entire governance just on the basis of him referring to someone as a girl I'd just take him aside and go listen mate I'm not a girl love I'm a woman so 
one of the bigger issues, and actually we're going to come back to this, I think, in our discussion about why Flutter has you know, moved its listing mm. to America. But one of the bigger issues, which business people have said to me, I was at a dinner last night where a lot of business people was d- there. Ex- expressed to me, <laughs> we're not going to go on to that. Yeah, it's um, just, for the, the, just for the purposes of the tape, um, Robert has just done one of those faces, which is like, I'm not telling you, Steph. Um, um, you're so right, Steph. You pick up on these incredibly <laughs> grotesque expressions that I make. Anyway. Hang on, hang on. What level are we talking of business people? Because that could be anyone. Are we talking? Yeah, we're talking about business leaders. C- people, CEOs. People, people. Big companies? Yeah, yeah. We're talking, right. about, we're talking okay. about FTSE, big big company mm. bosses, right? And they, you know, they're horrified about what they perceive as the way that a respectable business leader has been hung out to dry in order to build up the reputation of a politician. I mean, they see this as Kemi Badenoch courting popularity, particularly with Tory members. I mean, it is, it is a sort of amazing thing about how the Conservative Party has shifted that among Tory members, you know, it's regarded as a good thing when a cabinet minister, you know, kicks a civil servant or kicks a business leader because they're regarded as, in um, Michael Gove's famous phrase, the blob, you know, the establishment that's holding back the revival of Britain. And so, you know, I was talking to one of Kemi Badenoch's senior colleagues yesterday, and he says, almost certainly her popularity will go up among Tory members for having picked this fight with a white 75-year-old business leader as it were, or, or, or somebody who's, you know, been part of the business establishment. Because interestingly, whereas it used to be thought of as the party of business, these days, mm. quite a lot of Tory members are on the sort of so-called insurgent right, and they regard this sort of corporate establishment as part of the British problem. But why, you know, the Tory party is known for not being anti-business, it's meant to be pro-business. So why is it that now these fights are being picked? Because it's not going to impress, surely, the people who are out there running businesses who would normally It's all part, isn't it, of the way that politics has become, to use that expression, about the culture wars. These are people who, I don't know, frankly, whether Henry Staunton was, you know, pro or anti-Brexit. I would imagine he was a Remainer, but who knows? I don't think he's ever spoken out in public. It doesn't really matter. But those sorts of people were seen as being opposed to leaving the EU. So they were already mistrusted on that score. You know, quite a lot of these business leaders these days are, you know, hate because, you know, they are, I don't know, game whether he has any views on these, but they're seen as a somehow associated with the so-called woke agenda, equal pay, gender mm. equality. No, the, not gender equality again. You know, Who wants that? The, 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 you know, reducing CO2 emissions, you know, yeah. all the sort of corporate social responsibility stuff is stuff that is regarded as toxic by the anti-woke brigade. So it all gets mixed up in this great mess of sort of of emotions and culture wars. So to wrap things up then in this section, because I know we could go on about this for ages, what's going to happen next, do you think? Because, I mean, the key thing here is this is a massive distraction for the sub-postmasters again who actually just need their money back. They need this compensation. They need help to be able to run their businesses successfully. And this is yet another distraction, isn't it? So what happens next? Well, I hope that yet again it's focused you know, attention on the fact that sub-postmasters still haven't got most of them the money that they deserve and maybe it will speed them up. But before we go to the break, I just I teased you earlier about the final, I think, very amusing paragraph of the 
email that we started talking about at the top of the programme. Yeah, the one you got this morning. Go on then, tell us what's this last paragraph of that memo. It's about Grant Shapps, who is currently, as we know, the Defence Secretary. And this is a verbatim account of what his permanent secretary at the time said about him, and it may amuse a few people. It said, with regard to the forthcoming meeting with the Secretary of State, she gave some advice. He is nice and easy, but not interested in meetings. He prefers the written form. We should expect him to be pushy and demanding as he was with train operators while Secretary of State for Transport. He would hold us account. He will take a hard line on pay. And so far, her efforts apparently about pay within the post office have, in quotes, fallen on deaf ears. That's a surprise. Yeah, goodness. Well, I'm sure it's something we'll come back to again as this drama rumbles on. Um, Should we have a quick break? Why not? Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And me, Robert Peston. So we're going to talk now about the gambling group Flutter, which uh, plans to quit the UK's FTSE 100 index by moving its primary listing to New York. So it's something we've talked about before, isn't it? The problems with listing in this country and what's going on there and what the government are trying to do about it. Before we do that, let me just tell you who Flutter are, for those of you who don't know. This is you know, one of the FTSE's uh, top 20 companies. It's got a valuation of about £29 billion. Now, It's an island-based company and it came from the merger of Paddy Power and Betfair back in 2016. And then they bought the kind of the jewel in the crown, Fan Jewel in 2018. If you haven't heard of this before, this is massive in America. It's got about 43% uh, share of the sports betting market in America. And then they bought various other bits and bobs as well and then changed their name to Flutter Entertainment in 2019. But the big thing about this story is they're saying their reason for putting their primary list in America is they're saying that's because that's where they make the most money now. So if you look at, you know, just for example, the money they made at the end of last year, about just over a billion pounds of revenue came from the US compared to about 600 from the UK and Ireland. So they're saying we're going to make most of our profits in America next year. And so that is why we want to you know, put our primary list in there. But there is more to it than this, isn't there, Robert? Yeah, well, I was talking to one of the biggest, uh, almost influential investors in the UK, and I was just talking to him in general about what's been happening to the UK stock market. And the first thing he said was, oh my goodness, Flutter is moving its primary listing to America. It's part of this toxic trend of businesses either not wanting to list here or indeed moving their listings there. So just to tell you who those other companies are, you've got one of the big mining companies, BHP, they've left. CRH is a a massive building materials company. They might not necessarily be businesses you would ever have heard of, but they are huge. Smurfit Kappa as well, packaging company, uh, the plumbing supplier, Ferguson. They're all companies over the last few years have left the FTSE 100. We've talked in the past about how humiliating it is for the UK that probably our most successful tech company of recent years, Arm, the chip designer, its owner decided that its primary listing should be in America. And actually, I mean, the share price has just gone through the roof since it's been listed, partly because, you know, investors assume that it will benefit from the great AI boom. And so that's 
sort of doubles the humiliation for the UK of the fact that ARM, you know, most important operations around Cambridge, you know, is listed in America rather than here. But then there have been, you know, other businesses that have been you know, moving their listings to America. And I talked to you, you know, this is a big one coming up. We expect Boots to list later this year. Our assumption is because it is such a British business that it will list in the UK. But imagine, you know, how embarrassing that would be for the UK if it didn't. And, you know, there are actually pretty good reasons why if you were even a retailer, you might want to list in America. You know, investors, the fund managers, Schroders, did some work last year about how much cheaper on average London shares are than shares in other stock markets, right? And it's probably just worth explaining at this point that cheap may sound good if you're an investor, if you're putting money in, but it's only good if it shares then go up. Yeah, so you make were. some money from Cheap is, is no good to you if, if shares remain cheap. But the more important point is this. If you are an owner, if you are a business leader, having shares that are valued lower means that the cost for you of raising money is significantly higher. It's what's called the cost of capital, right? And when the cost of raising money is higher, it's more expensive to invest. Mm -hmm. So it is more expensive to grow your business. There was a time in the 80s and 90s when British companies were selling shares all the time to buy other companies, to make investments. And this was a time when British businesses were, you know, growing really fast and were actually, you know, among the biggest in the world. And I mentioned in an earlier episode, in 2000, we had three companies in the UK that were in the world's 25 biggest. We don't have a single company in the world's 25 biggest these days. And we have about one company in the world's top 50, which is AstraZeneca. And I have to say, given if you look now at its international spread of operations and where it invests, some people would argue it's not even really a British company anymore. France has a whole series of companies in the top 50. Uh, you know, even Denmark has a company in the top 25. Novo Nordisk, we've talked about them yeah, before. This the Wigovi you know, and, and Ozempic I mean, Obviously, the, you know, global companies are dominated by Americans. They have the biggest companies. But Britain is basically nowhere at the moment. I just thought very briefly, it might be worth just calling up this data, which has been done for us. Actually, it's been updated for this podcast by Schroders for us, which is very generous for, um, An exclusive. of them. So here we are in a note that they put out, which they've updated, I say, with data for us. They point out that the undervaluation of British companies is particularly striking in respect of the US stock market. So you'll know this, but one of the sort of bog standard methods of valuing a company is to look at its share price as a ratio of its earnings, right? Uh, on a per share basis. And on average, at the moment, UK shares are something like 25% cheaper than American shares on that valuation, which means, to be clear, the other side of it, it is 25% more expensive for companies to raise money by selling shares yeah. than it would be if they were selling those shares in America. And that's on average. And if you look at particular sectors, that valuation gap is even bigger. And it's really big, even in retail. So as I say, it would be perfectly rational for Boots to... I don't think Boots will list in America, but it would be rational for Boots to list its shares in America. Isn't the other thing as well about listing in America is that they have higher trading volumes. So it means that investors can buy and sell without dramatically impacting the share price because 
that is a problem, isn't it? If you know people start selling their shares, if 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 that can you know affect the share price dramatically, then that's going to then mean lots lots of other people start selling them as well in a bit of a panic. So it reduces the kind of fluctuations in kind of dramatic differences in share prices. I mean, inevitably, this issue of liquidity, trading liquidity, is an important one, and and you know there is. You know, inevitably at the moment, there probably is slightly less liquidity in in London than in America. But I don't think at the moment that's the sort of biggest issue. The biggest issue here is regulatory and political risk. I mean, we talked earlier in the programme about how upset British businesses were at the way that Henry Staunton had been bashed by the business secretary. And they see this as part of a trend. You know, we've talked about the sacking of Alison Rose as chief executive of NatWest. Yeah, this is um, all to do with the Nigel Farage Coots account being closed, wasn't it? And then it was it was about what she, what she said, said about, to a BBC yeah. journalist yeah. about allegedly the confidential banking circumstances of Nigel Farage. Now, you know, there are many people who thought that she should never have spoken to that BBC journalist and that it was appropriate for her to be sacked. Mm. But interestingly, you know, another very big investor, right, who, who controls, you know, billions of pounds of liquidity for investment. I mean, he said the fact that it was effectively the Chancellor who sacked Alison Rose is what really upset him. If the board had decided to sack her, mm. fine, right? But essentially, the government stood up and said they'd lost confidence in her. And at that point, you know, NatWest had no choice but to get rid of her, particularly since about a third of the shares are still owned by the government. And he just says, look, basically, you know, why would you invest in a British company if there is always a risk that a politician is going to stand up and, and bash them? You know, there are also all sorts of issues around the way that our regulators are making it incredibly difficult for really important businesses to plan for the long term, whether it's in the media space, whether it's in the energy space, whether it's, I mean, obviously we've seen the disaster of ener- of water regulation. Mm. I mean, absolutely disastrous. And whether you think that, you know, they were too pro or too anti-business in terms of the, the, the service we want from water companies, it's been a catastrophe with all this sewage, you know, being pumped into rivers and, and seas. There's a general view around the place, particularly in business, that regulation is not efficient and done well in this country. Um, and, And that is also depressing share prices. And of course, finally, we've still got a discount because of Brexit, because the cost of trading with our biggest market went up. You know, there is a broad view among investors, whatever the politicians may think, investors felt it damaged our prospects. The the other side of this, though, is that surely this is an incentive for investors to buy shares on UK listed companies, though, because if they're cheaper than they are in America, although it's more expensive for the company to raise money, it's better for, you know, people like me and you or whoever who want to buy shares in British companies because that's what we have a big problem with too. It's what, you know, the Chancellor has talked to us about. You know, we're not a country. We're not people who tend to invest in businesses. We are, you know, much more into saving money in the traditional means than we are putting it into stocks and shares. So perhaps this is could be used as an incentive to try and get people to invest more into our businesses here as well. So this also takes us back to that regulation point I made. I mean, one of the, you know, one of the reasons shares are undervalued 
is because around the turn of the century, there were a whole series of reforms of the way that pension funds, particularly defined benefit pension funds, final salary pension funds were allowed to invest, which basically discouraged them from investing in stocks and shares um, and encouraged them to invest in government bonds. And the proportion of British shares now owned by pension funds has shrunk to an all-time low. And you know, not even British investors are investing in the British stock market. So there are all sorts of things that need to be done. You know, one of the things that needs to be done is, and you know, the Chancellor has inched towards this, but has not done enough. There needs to be new incentives put in place for British pension funds to invest in British companies. And I mean, the other thing that you and I have talked about is there ought to be more incentives for all of us um, to invest in British companies. One of the things the Chancellor has been looking at are these limits on ISAs, so how much you can put into a a savings pot that is protected from tax. And, you know, my own view would be that that ceiling, at the moment it's 20,000 quid. I think that ceiling, if you were just investing in British shares, should be doubled or even perhaps, you know, maybe go up to 50,000 quid or something per year. So long as you're putting that money into Britain and therefore cutting the cost of capital for British companies and therefore encouraging them to invest, which in turn will get the growth rate up, will make all of us better off. But to get back to your point, though, I can't sort of repeat this too often. And I said, I sort of said earlier, you're right that when you see a stock market that looks cheap and ours does, of course, it's tempting as an individual to want to put your money in there because you know, it looks as though you'll get a better dividend yield, you'll get more income from it. And and that's true. But if Britain is on a course of decline, yeah. then cheap shares can become cheaper. Share prices can actually fall. And so if you're going to fix the stock market, it's part of a whole government package of getting people more confident about the growth prospects of the UK as a whole. And um, There's one other point that we haven't touched on, and this is true actually not just in the UK, but across the world, but I think it has been an important issue in the UK, is actually across the world, and this is true in America, the numbers of companies listed on stock markets has been falling over the last 30 years. And that's because of the creation of this other pool of capital, the private equity pool of Mm. capital, where basically businesses... In the old days, if you were a growing business, your first step to try and take some money out was to list on the stock exchange quite often. Now, if you want to take some money out uh, and you don't want public scrutiny and you know you want to be sheltered from journalists yeah. accusing you of being paid too much, rather than going on the stock market where there's tremendous transparency. So, for example, I don't know if you know this, but I think the typical annual report for a listed company in the UK, back to this regulation point, it's like 300 pages of information you have to produce every single year for your investors because because of the regulation. If you're a private equity company, you have to disclose almost none of that. You're, you're not transparent to the world. You can get a ton of money from these private funds and you can manage yourself in a private way. One of my favourite jobs when I used to work on um, BBC Breakfast doing the business news on a morning was waiting for one of those 300 page documents to land at seven o'clock and then trying to decipher it and then 10 minutes later having to say what I could about it on, and what, on and telly. What, and I'll, be, and I'll, I'll ask you a question and tell yeah. the truth about this. What was the first page you tended to turn to? 
come on, it was the pay page, wasn't it? Yeah, of course. Because the first question anybody on the news wanted to know is, what is the fat cat boss being paid? But that is part of the culture that business leaders hate. That's why they would much rather not be listed on the stock market because they regard that kind of focus on pay as anti-business. And so it's terrible to repeat oneself, but I mean, you know, you'll remember our conversation about how much less British bosses are paid, particularly than American bosses. So another reason why, you know, British companies want to list in America is they can be paid more. Yeah, I mean, this is exactly what I'm going to do with slime, to be honest. Uh, I mean, the, the multinational <laughs> conglomerate. So you're going to list, you're not going to go for the private equity route. Oh, no, I'm going private equity. I, I want to keep, keep everything private, hidden. Yeah. Keep, I don't keep want it, to know keep it all what in the house. money I've got coming in. I don't want everyone to know. Um, the one thing I just think is worth explaining, though, as well, is, you know, for example, using ARM as an example to explain this. ARM is still here, employing people here and doing work here, why does it matter where it's listed? Because that's one of the, you know, does it matter if the company's here that they're listed in another country? And also this point about being primary listed in one place, but then secondary listed in another that that's a bit of a mind melt as well for people to understand, isn't it? Um, So the primary listing is the one that, that matters because that determines the rules that you have to follow and, then- and inevitably it also because you then spend your time talking to investors in that place it means that that's broadly where most of the share trading will take place but your other point is a really 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 important point which is why does it matter where you list okay there are a whole variety of reasons one is we have a whole ecosystem of financial services businesses in london lawyers accountants, consultants. And if your primary listing is in London, they will get all that spin-off business and that creates jobs and that creates wealth, right? Yeah. So if it's in America, a huge amount of that business shifts to America. But then there are other issues, right? If your primary listing is in America and if your domicile, your home is in America, then it also means that's where the cash flows end up. And when you've got, for example, additional investment to make, you're more likely to make that investment in the country that is your home. And so the problem with not having your base, your home in the UK is patriotism matters, right? We're all, we all have these, whether we admit it or not, we all have these patriotic instincts. If a business thinks of itself as American or French or German, when it comes to new investment decisions, it will favour that country. If ARM no longer within its wider ownership thinks of itself as a British company, then there is a risk that over time there will be less investment in the British operation. Right. There's a phrase for this. It's called the headquarters effect. So it's not fatal for the business to be owned by a foreign company. And actually, historically, if you thought British management was bad, there were quite good reasons sometimes for British businesses to be owned by foreign businesses, because sometimes the quality of the foreign business management was so much better that it benefited the business here. So it's not curtains for a business to be taken over by a foreign owner. 
But in the end, and this is the point that I think we all need to focus on, as a country, as an economy, we want to be in charge of our own destiny. And there comes a point when so much of your economy is foreign owned that you are basically, as an economy, reliant on what you might call the goodwill of strangers, the goodwill of people who have no emotional attachment to this country. And that, in my view, is a problem. Yes. Look, let's go back to the story of the moment. We haven't really talked enough about Flutter. What do you yeah. think is going on? Well, it's really interesting what's been going on in uh, the gambling world, isn't it? Because, you know, we've talked about Denise Coates, haven't we, and the amount of money she's been making. But a lot of the, the money now in terms of gambling is coming from the US because there's been a lot of change there in terms of regulation. You know, ever since the, you know, we had the, that federal ban on sports betting was lifted in 2018. So now there's a massive market there, isn't there, for gambling in the US. Whereas if you look at what's been going on here in the UK and the EU, regulation's been increasing and it's seen now as a bit of a dirty industry gambling in this country, isn't it? Whereas in America, because this federal ban's been lifted, there's massive growth there and that's exactly what Flutter can see if they're getting you know, the majority of their revenue from there. And they're spending a lot of money on advertising in the US now as well, again, to soak up all these people that they couldn't market to before or let make bets before, there's a massive market there. So there's less focus here where there's a lot more problems in terms of regulation. Do you enjoy gambling? I, yeah, I do. But I tend to gamble in situ. Like if I'm at a football match, I'll tend to have a little, you know, I'll, I love filling out one of the sheets and then going to the, the person who takes it in and I'm putting my odds on who's going to score first and things like that. And then I did used to like betting on the Grand National, but that feels a bit a bit more punchy now because there always seems to be a horse that dies. So I've become a little bit more uncomfortable with the Grand National. I hate it. Actually, I've been doing my family history recently and I was reminded of my grandfather who, uh, you know, in family folklore, lost the family fortune by gambling on the greyhounds. And really? so and it's sort of come down through the generations so that I actually have a horror of <laughs> so, <laughs> that, so could you be minted if your great-granddad ever hadn't the, lost the, the fact, fortune? I don't know about minted, but he had a perfectly decent business, ah. which apparently completely uh, undermined by literally every time he had any money, he would uh, yeah. fritter it away on the dogs. Have you ever gambled then? I hate it. Yeah. See, I'm big into Vegas as well. I, Me and my partner go to Vegas quite a lot and I love having a, you know, go on all the different tables and stuff there. I get really into it. But to a point where I have to only do it in those places. Like, I'd ne I don't think I'd ever go to a casino in the UK because I literally would have no money left by the end of it. I think your family history also makes the point, doesn't it, that it is also something that can be bad for people. People can get addicted to it. I've interviewed over the years a fair few people who've had massive problems with gambling. So it doesn't work for everyone. Right. Should we wrap things up then? Uh, we should. And we've got a question special coming up tomorrow, yeah, we haven't we? have. And some of the questions actually link to some of the stuff we've been talking about so we can expand on all of that. And just a reminder, if you do want to send in questions, it's restismoney at gmail.com or you can send them through our social media pages. Just search The Rest Is Money. But that's it from us. Bye-bye. All the best. <laughs>